remember that it was smaller than I thought it would be. And despite the high summer sun, it was dark in that single room cabin. It was hot too. Really hot. That July weekend, I joined several other ministers, along with my pastor, to make a four-hour trip to an out-of-the-way, one-room log cabin in Kentucky. A log cabin that really wasn't all that old. It had been built just in 1994 to be a replica of the original building. The original building was built between 1789 and 1792. Some 60 years later, in 1856, the original building simply collapsed in disrepair. Not long after, another building was built, but it too had to eventually be torn down due to deterioration and disuse. And for 30 years, there was no building at all. Then in 1959, some historically-minded people built a log cabin that was supposed to resemble the original building. But in a mysterious fire, the building burned to the ground in 1992. Then in 1994, an association was formed to raise funds to again rebuild the building, which was completed in 1994. So there I was, sitting in a 10-year-old replica of a replica, a building that had been built in one way or another four times since its original. But as we sat down on those rough-cut timber benches, my pastor reached into his pocket and pulled out a small paperback book. He then read the account of what took place on those grounds so long ago, an event that took place out in the middle of nowhere, on the far edge of a fledgling nation, in a region of the country filled with criminals and fugitives, an event that not only had a profound effect on the local area of Logan County, Kentucky, or the frontier state as a whole, but left its mark on succeeding generations in the states of Tennessee, Georgia, Ohio, Virginia, and the Carolinas, and to some degree altered the heart and conscience of America while it was still in its cradle of infancy. I'm Ronnie Brown, and this is Forgotten. The story of the Red River Meeting House is not really confined to the land or the building itself. It's really focused on a man, a man by the name of James McGreedy. He was born in Pennsylvania of Scottish-Irish descent. When he was still quite young, his father moved from Pennsylvania and settled into Guilford County, North Carolina. It was here that he spent his childhood. James was found to be a thoughtful and serious-minded young man. He showed great promise of a good, honest, manly character. An uncle from Pennsylvania who was on a visit to his father's family thought the young James would make a fine minister and asked James' father and mother if they would allow their son to accompany him to Pennsylvania so that he might get a ministerial education, and they agreed. It was during the early days of his education in 1785 that something significant took place in the life of this young man. Under the preaching of a Reverend Mr. Smith, 
McGreedy came under great conviction of his own sin. He came to the realization that his own character, even how good or moral, could not bring acceptance before God. All of his moral deeds could not gain him eternal life. James realized that he must be born from above. It was not long after that that he was soundly saved. After finishing his education in the fall of 1788, James McGreedy began to make his way home to North Carolina. On the way home, he passed through Hemden, Sydney, Virginia, where at the time there was a great move of God in reviving throughout the whole community, and particularly Hemden, Sydney College. While there, he was able to spend time with Dr. John Blair Smith, the president of Hemden, Sydney College. Dr. Smith had been greatly used of God in connection with this local revival, and McGreedy was powerfully affected by what he saw and heard during this time of gracious reviving. It would forever kindle a thirst in his heart for the outpouring of the Spirit of God, no matter where his ministry took him. Upon arriving in North Carolina, he found the local churches dry and dead, barren and lifeless. He attacked the ministry of the Word with zeal and fervor. His preaching was a means of awakening during that time. The fires of local revival began to be fanned. In 1790, Mr. McGreedy was married and became the pastor of a congregational church in Orange County. His labor and faithfulness to God began to bring a great harvest. But it was not without opposition. He was accused of distracting people from their vocation by all this religious excitement and of creating unnecessary alarm in an otherwise decent and moral people. This opposition went beyond accusation. On one occasion, the hatred for McGreedy incited a group of people to overturn the pews of the church and burn his pulpit and set fire to the building. Even a letter written in blood was left threatening harm to him if he did not leave his ministry. This did not deter McGreedy one bit. He continued his preaching and praying, and over time, his dissenters were more and more few. In the late 1890s, Kentucky was a frontier land. It was sparsely populated, and many of the folks were not looking to be found. Often these frontier lands were places for people to hide from justice back east. One particular area of Kentucky was notorious for such characters. Logan County, Kentucky was known as Rogue's Harbor or Satan's Stronghold. It was overrun with murderers and horse thieves, highway robbers and land speculators and all-around con artists. It was the most dangerous place to live in the nation. Attempts to establish law and order failed time and time again. Now, although we're not told the reasoning behind the decision, maybe it was a burden to share the gospel of Christ in such a depraved place. Maybe it was through an invitation to come and help the churches that were struggling in the area. Or maybe it was simply the provisional guiding hand of God. But whatever the reason... In 1796, James McGreedy and his family moved to Logan County, Kentucky. By 1797, he had taken the pastoral role of three congregations in Logan County, Jasper River, Red River, and Muddy River. 
Now, although these congregations were small and interest in spiritual things was anemic, there were some of an earnest desire to follow Jesus Christ. James McGreedy once again threw everything into the ministry with the same zeal and pursuit of God that he had done in North Carolina. He made great efforts to arouse the people to their slumbering spiritual condition, as well as making appeals for the conversion of sinners. He also encouraged those that were sincere about the things of God to pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. From 1797 to 1799, McGreevy preached without any great deal of success. But in the summer of 1799, something changed. The ministry of James McGreedy brought with it a long tradition known as the Scottish Sacrament Season, which was still being practiced regularly in Presbyterian congregations. It was an extended time of the observance of the Lord's Supper over several days in the warm weather months of the year. It included outdoor preaching, large numbers of people often traveling long distances, long vigils of prayer, and was often the scene of dramatic conversions. In the summer of 1799, a remarkable spirit of prayer was given to these Christians. A sensible, heartfelt burden for the dreadful state of sinners outside of Christ. During this protracted meeting for the Lord's Supper, God blessed in a mighty move of His Spirit. The unconverted, under deep sense of guilt and condemnation, fell from their seats and lay helpless on the floor, crying out to God for the saving of their souls was such a miraculous meeting that news of what took place that summer spread all over the countryside. And in the following year, there was a great sense of anticipation for what might happen at the next meeting. In June of 1800, the Lord's Supper meeting was held at the Red River Meeting House. James McGreedy was joined by several other ministers for the meeting. These included William Hodge, John Rankin, William McAdow, and the brothers John and William McGee, each of which having varying degrees of denomination. It was on Monday of that meeting, while Mr. Hodge was preaching, a woman in the east end of the house got an uncommon blessing. Breaking through the usual order of things, she shouted for some time and then sat down in silence. Soon after the sermon was ended, the people were so wrought upon that when they were dismissed, they kept their seats. They wept silently all over the house. Hodge, McGreedy, and Rankin all quietly made their way out of the building. But the McGee brothers remained inside. History records what took place next through the eyes of John McGee. And I quote, My brother felt such a power come on him that he quit his seat and sat down in the floor of the pulpit. A power which caused me to tremble was upon me. There was a solemn weeping all over the house. Having a wish to preach, I strove against my feelings. At length I rose up and told the people I was appointed to preach, but there was a greater than I preaching, and exhorted them to let the Lord God omnipotent reign in their hearts and to submit to Him and their souls should be saved. The woman in the east end of the building shouted tremendously. I left the pulpit to go to her, and as I went along through the people, it was suggested to me, quote, You know these people are much for order, 
and they will not bear this confusion. Go back and be quiet. I turned to go back and was near falling down. The power of God was so strong on me. I turned again and losing sight of the fear of man, I went through the house shouting and exhorting with all possible ecstasy and energy and the floor was soon covered with the slain. Their screams for mercy pierced the heavens and mercy came down. Some found forgiveness and many went away from that meeting feeling unutterable agonies of the soul for redemption in the blood of Jesus. End quote. What followed was a scene of prayer and exhortation that ignited the whole camp. It's estimated that 500 people came to that Red River meeting. The following month in August of 1800, the meeting was held in Jasper River Church. An estimated 8,000 people came to Jasper River, and once again God poured out His Spirit. McGreedy described the miraculous happenings, quote, The power of God seemed to shake the whole assembly. Towards the close of the sermon, the cries of distress arose almost as loud as His voice. After the congregation was dismissed, the solemnity increased until the greater part of the multitude seemed engaged in the most solemn manner. No person seemed to wish to go home. Hunger and sleep seemed to affect nobody. Eternal things were the vast concern. Here, awakenings and converting work was to be found in every part of the multitude. Sober professors who had been communicants for many years now lying prostrate on the ground crying out. Persons of every description, white, black, there were to be found in every part of the multitude crying out for mercy in the most extreme distress. In the following year in 1801 at the Cane River Communion meeting, There was a staggering 25,000 people gathered in the wilderness, camping in the hundreds of wagons. The Second Great Awakening had begun. The revival had transformed the frontier, changing the county from Rogue's Harbor to Soul's Harbor. One man visiting Kentucky in 1802 said, I have found Kentucky the most moral place I've ever been in. A religious awe seemed to pervade the whole country. Simultaneously in the northern parts of the country, God took the hammer of his wheel and ignited even more sparks of revival by the flint of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hundreds of thousands of people were swept into the kingdom of God. These revival fires burned all the way to the Civil War, even in the regiments of the North and South. The saving gospel of Jesus Christ swept soldiers into the saving hand of God before their blood was shed on the battlefields of Appomattox, Vicksburg, Chickamauga, and Gettysburg. As a matter of fact, my great-great-great-grandfather, Jeremy Brown, came out of the Southern Brigades to settle in a little town in Alabama and start a little congregational church that exists to this day. After he read the account, my pastor looked at all us young preachers and said, Fellas, God hasn't changed. The same God that sent revival then is the same one that can send it now. God can change our churches. God can change our communities. He can still change our nation. It was then that he directed all of us to 
find a little place somewhere out of the way in that replica building bow our heads and ask God to do it again. When we see our nation slowly devouring itself, spiraling out of control, we tend to feel powerless, like we can do nothing about it. And for the most part, we truly are powerless. But there's a God in heaven that can, with the outpouring of His Spirit, detour the course of a nation on its way to destruction. God can't do it again. Our hearts must cry out to Him like the psalmist in Psalm 85, 6. Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Forgotten is written and produced by me, Ronnie Brown. You can find out more about this show at ForgottenPodcast.com. And as always, thanks for listening.